Well, good morning again. Uh, thanks for praying with me. And uh, let's get into the Word. So, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 this morning. It's on page 811 in the Bibles in front of you if you want to turn there. Over the summer, we've been doing a couple things here. On Sunday mornings, we've been going through a series in Proverbs, if you haven't been here, a series of, on wisdom and seeing how wisdom is seeing reality rightly and then acting accordingly. Seeing reality through God's view of what is actually true and then following through in practical ways. We've covered a lot of different topics as we've gone through the Proverbs, always seeking to apply the wisdom that God has revealed in his word. Paired up with that, on Thursday nights we've been doing something called Seek. And Seek has been a weekly activity. We've had different groups gathering together. If you haven't been here this summer, that's I'm trying to catch you up a little bit. We've been reading through a book by John Piper called A Hunger for God, Desiring God Through Prayer and Fasting. So we've desired to see God stir a greater hunger in his people here as we consider specifically prayer and fasting. If you haven't read that book, I would highly recommend it. We've been doing these things together to see God activate, if I can say this, to activate our identities. We find our identity in Christ. Lord, we want to see it activated daily in our lives. And the decisions that we make, the actions that we choose, Lord, help us see our identity in Christ formed and shown in us. Well, this morning, I'm preaching from Matthew 6, which is kind of a full circle thing for me this summer, too, even as we're wrapping up the summer. I preach from Matthew chapter 6 at Grace Family Church up in Rogers Park on Memorial Day. And I'm preaching from Matthew chapter 6 today on Labor Day, even as kind of the Chicago summer concludes. I know especially CPS students are like, yeah, Tuesday is when summer is really over and school starts up. So this is kind of the conclusion of our summer here at church. Next Sunday, Bill will start our new series on Philippians. So a little heads up on that. Let me remind you of something that Bill spoke on quite a few weeks ago, Proverbs chapter 2, 1 through 6. You don't need to turn there. Just listen to this and, and be refreshed on the reality of seeking wisdom. The author of Proverbs writes this, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver, if you seek it like silver and search for it, as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. Do you hear the posture of the wisdom seeker there? Calling out for understanding, inclining his ear, inclining his heart. These are the things of a man or a woman that is seeking to be wise that realizes they need to grow in wisdom. And so there's this overt seeking wisdom that they did not have. And they know it comes from the Lord. For that's a key verse here that helps us transition into Matthew. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. In the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, the wise man, the one who hears these words of mine and does them, is like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. Conversely, the foolish man is the one who hears the words of Christ and does not respond to them. In one ear and out the other. He's like a foolish man that builds his house on the sand. When the storm comes, the wise man's house stays upright, stays solid. The foolish man's house crumbles and is carried away with the flood. In Proverbs, the Spirit, through the author of Proverbs, says, from the Lord, For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. And then we see Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, the one who is God incarnate, say, listen, you have to listen to My words. My words are wisdom. And you must do them in order to be proven wise. It's not just hear them. It is hear and respond. Listen and do. 
Wisdom is always putting God's wisdom into practice. To call yourself a wise person means I hear from God and then I act accordingly. I act obediently. This is true wisdom. Without such practice, we are proven to be fools. So we go back from Matthew chapter 7, which is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and we go to Matthew chapter 6, and that's where we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, you heard Krista and Haddon kind of read this a few minutes ago. Listen to it again. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That word seek, seeking first the kingdom of God, that word in the Greek there in the New Testament is also used in the Greek Septuagint translation of Proverbs when you're seeking wisdom like silver. Jesus is saying your heart attitude towards seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness should be the same if you are wise as that seeking after wisdom as silver. This all makes sense. Jesus being the wisdom of God is saying from my mouth pours wisdom. Listen to me and respond. Listen to me and respond. So what is he saying specifically? He's saying this, and it forms the title of the sermon this morning. First, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Above all else, seek the Father's kingdom and his righteousness. Above all else, this is a right ordering of life. It is a wise statement to say, if you seek God's kingdom and his righteousness above all else, all else will be added to you. Everything else will fall into its right place in your life. This is the elevated wisdom of Christ to say, seek the Father's kingdom and his righteousness and let him handle the rest. How does this practically work out? I asked my kids this last night at dinner. I said, tomorrow morning, I'm going to be trying, to be trying to answer the question, what does it look like to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness? They gave some good answers. Gave some good answers, but I said, well, listen up tomorrow because that's what dad will be preaching on. When you seek something, you're understanding in that action that you don't have it. And you are looking for it. So to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness means that there is a kingdom of God that's apart from yourself, that there is a righteousness that you do not have, and we need to seek it in order to find it. Would you flip back to Matthew chapter 5, the very beginning please, because I think the, the first few verses of Matthew chapter 5 help us to understand a little bit more of the nuance that Jesus is getting at when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. These are the Beatitudes. They're, they're the initial truth statements, the blessing statements that Jesus opens up his Sermon on the Mount with. And look especially for kingdom and righteousness. And I think you're going to see that there's an expression of need and an expression of desire here. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. Jesus opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who, hear this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. To define a term real quick, righteousness is right standing before God. It's to be able to stand before God and before His holy measuring stick, before His holy presence, to be able to stand there and survive. To be able to say, yes, I am actually righteous also. So verse 6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for this righteousness, for this right standing, for this ability to be in God's presence and not be judged. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for this righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
there's this expression of need. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Here we see righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We see a link between righteousness and the kingdom. But did you hear what the blessed part of that is? Blessed are those who are persecuted for these things. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So, th- so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you hear how Jesus is beginning his argument on the Sermon on the Mount here? He's saying here, you are blessed when there's a division, a division that causes persecution. A division between people. It's not just all, can't we all just get along? There's a division between people from which persecution arises. That division is for righteousness' sake. It's for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Having righteousness, having the kingdom of heaven, seeking those things sets people apart from those who don't. And it causes friction. It causes, it can even cause persecution. But look at 11 again. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Here Jesus brings himself into the equation. He's not just talking about these ethereal concepts of righteousness and the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, I embody those things. You are going to be persecuted for my sake. You're going to be reviled. You're going to be hated for my sake. I embody the Father's righteousness. I embody the kingdom of God. When Jesus arrived in the beginning of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was meaning, I brought the kingdom with me. It's personified in me. So what does it mean simply to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness? It simply means this, to seek Christ. It simply means this, to seek Christ. The kingdom and righteousness have come into a man, and that man is Jesus. Now, if you want, you can flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I know, we haven't even gotten to Matthew 6 yet. I'm getting there, don't worry. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to it if you don't want to turn there. This is verses 18 through 31. But I, I had to go here because it talks about righteousness, it talks about wisdom, and it talks about foolishness. So if we're wrapping up the summer of wisdom this morning, if we're hearing Jesus speak words of wisdom in Matthew 6, if we're desiring to hunger for God more and put action to it, You've got to hear from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to it if you're not reading it. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You hear the division there? But to us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So then Paul asks this, where is the one who was wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the quote-unquote foolishness of what we preach, the cross, it pleased God to save those who believe. For Jews, they demand, to, they demand signs. And Greeks, they seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. 
But, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised even in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, hear this, wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, that means being made holy, and redemption, that means being bought back from our slave master of sin. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do you see this? Christ is the wisdom of God. Christ is the righteousness of God. But Paul calls out to fools. Paul calls out to who the world would say, you're foolish. You have not succeeded. You're not from the right family. You don't have the right job. You're not from the right class. You're not making enough money now. You don't have your future set. In fact, if anything, you're stuck in the dregs of society and stuck in the muck of your sin. You can't hide it. And we know it. This is what society might say of you. It's what society might say of all believers. You're fools. You trust in a man who lived 2,000 years ago. And all of your hope is based on a cross? And that he somehow rose from the dead? You're fools. But the wisdom of God shows the foolishness of the world. Because it was, it was exactly the cross that we needed. It was actually the wisdom of God imbued in the cross so that we could have our death sentences paid for. So that we who are foolish sinners, yes, could see the wisdom of God in saving foolish sinners and calling them to himself so that we would not boast so that we would not say, look at us and pop our collars and say, we saved ourselves. No, if anything, Christians should be the lowest of the low, saying, if it was not for God, Psalm 40, we would not have been called up from the muck and the mire. We would not have any place where we could shout aloud to the congregation saying, great is the Lord, for he has saved me. Instead, the wisdom of God says, this is who you are. You are now wise that the world would account you as fools. So I would ask you this morning, have you trusted in Christ, the wisdom of God, shown to be in the world's eyes a fool on the cross, dying a sinner's death? Have you actually trusted him? Have you actually sought him? Have you actually said, yes, I am a sinner deserving of judgment, and the cross is an exhibition of how severe and full the judgment should be on me. If that is your place of weakness, if that is your poverty of spirit, that yes, I need to be forgiven, then look to Christ and say yes, and He's the one who can forgive me. He's the one who came and died on that foolish cross to show the wisdom of God is greater than the foolishness of the world. Even today, you can trust in Christ. I focus on this, the reality of the righteousness of God embodied in Christ, because Matthew chapter 6, you will get the wrong picture of what Jesus is saying here if you don't understand the righteousness of Christ that he offers to all of those who are in him. Matthew chapter 6 would be a burdensome thing it would be a list of behaviors and rules if you did not find your righteousness in Christ 
first and foremost. But again, how do we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Kingdom people, Christians here today, the rest of the sermon is for you. Jesus was talking to his disciples, specifically the Sermon on the Mount. He was addressing them and showing them, this is how it looks to be a disciple of mine. You will be reviled. You will be persecuted. You are poor in spirit apart from me, but you are pure in heart because of me. The kingdom of God is yours. You will inherit the earth. These are the things that Jesus was saying to his disciples, specifically as the crowds listened in. So when we read verses like the end of chapter 6, telling us not to be anxious, we have to consider as kingdom people who are seeking the kingdom and his righteousness, we have to consider this. Jesus presents the reality of rivals to his kingdom. Rivals to his throne. Those things that are still in us, even as sons and daughters of the king, those things that are still in our flesh that still long for self-fulfillment. What would be one of those rivals? Well, as Krista read earlier, material anxiety. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your Father knows them. Are you not of more value than they? Continues on to the bottom. The Gentiles seek after these things. The Gentiles seek after material gain, material security. Your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What Jesus is saying here is this, not that you shouldn't care about those things, but how do those things make us anxious? How do those things dominate our thoughts? How do those things so easily slither their way up onto the throne? And our minds are dominated by what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? This reality is especially pernicious in Western America 2019. Because our whole society is defined on materialism. We've never in the history of the world had a wealthier country than ours. And you may say, well, I'm not very wealthy. Well, how many clothes do you have in your closet at home? When was the last time you went a full day or two or three without eating or with only barely one meal? Unless you've been fasting some this summer, probably not in quite a while. Here's the thing. Our, our souls, our hearts are so dialed in to self-fulfillment and materialism. We, we, it's, it's so ingrained in us that it's hard to even get ourselves out of it. It's like a fish trying to get out of water to analyze the water that it was just in. I'll give you an example. We were at a, we were at a um, hotel this last week because we were on our way um, down to Alabama and the hotel coffee was bad. I'm just being honest. The hotel, hotel coffee was bad. What's my immediate response? Good thing there's a Starbucks across the street. We'll get some on the way out. If there had not been one across the street, you can, I can guarantee you I would have found something with quality coffee within a mile or two before we got on the highway for the rest of our trip. All right? Isn't that you too? You wake up in the morning, you're like, man, that outfit I really love isn't clean this morning. I'm not going to be able to rock this day today. 
because my best clothes are in the wash. What are the people in my meeting going to think of me when I wear my second suit? Or when my shoes aren't as polished as theirs are? Visited a good friend of mine um, in Selma a few days ago. Good friend. Uh, we were roommates junior year of college. And um, it was interesting. I, I saw myself in him. You know, we hadn't seen each other in a long time. I'd never been to his house before. And they had a, they had a beautiful home. But he said, yeah, we, we rent. And you could tell even in the way that he said we rent, there was a certain shame there. Because he didn't know if we owned or rented. By the way, we rent. <laughs> there... I quickly said, we rent too. We live in an apartment right next to the church that we couldn't afford in our neighborhood if it wasn't owned by the church. Okay? Here's the thing. There's that, there's that gravity towards um, self-assurance, towards self-elevation, that even things like short conversations about do you own or rent, they can play into how we see ourselves and one another. And it's this fish still in the water of materialism and expectation that makes that really pernicious to our hearts. So Jesus is saying, but why do you worry about that? Why are you anxious about that? Is the Father anxious about that? The Father knows even what the Gentiles need. He knows what you need too. But that material anxiety is a rival to, that, to the, the kingdom of God. It's a rival to his throne. A second one would be the love of money. Look at um, chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. We're kind of moving backwards, actually, through Matthew 6. Material anxiety would be the first kingdom rival that Jesus talks about here. The second would be the love of money. Verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I mean, that makes it pretty clear if we're talking about like the wisdom and the foolishness equation here. Jesus is saying, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. That should prompt us to immediately say, I want my treasure to be in heaven then. I want all the things that come through my hands here to be kingdom-oriented. I want the Lord to reorganize my wealth. Whatever level that may be, we are all wealthy. Whatever level that may be, Lord, reorient my wealth in ways that are kingdom-minded because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verses 22 and 23 are interesting. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy your whole body will be full of light. There are some scholars who see a shade of meaning in the word healthy there to actually being meant to, to, to mean generosity. So let me read that again. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is generous, then your whole body will be full of light. Conversely, he's going to talk about bad here. Some scholars think this means miserly or greedy. But if your eye is greedy your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? For no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So if you're looking for an understanding of what it means to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness wisely and practically, consider your money. Do you love money more than God. Say, well, that's hard to judge. I don't exactly know. Well, then use verses 22 and 23. Are you generous of spirit? Are you generous of spirit? Are you openly using your money for the good of God's kingdom and His people?
Or are you not? Are you miserly? Are you hoarding? Are you greedy? Are you Ebenezer Scrooge? They're in the first part of the book. But just with a nicer face and a better attitude towards people. But you know that in your heart of hearts, you're anxious about money. And because you're anxious about money and what you will eat and what you will drink and what you will wear, you kind of just keep things to yourself. And God doesn't really have the reins of your financial horse. See, just to press into this a little bit more, the thing is, when we are miserly with our money, we are living a now-oriented life. We are putting all of our eggs into the present basket and not living towards eternity. There's a word that I'd like you to learn this morning if you don't know it called magnanimous. To be magnanimous means to be full of life, big-hearted. It's Scrooge at the end of the book. All right? Scrooge was magnanimous. He couldn't stop using his wealth to bless others. And he did it in a variety of ways. C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man says this, magnanimity, that's the quality of being magnanimous, big-heartedness is what connects our minds to our bodies. He says the problem is, the problem is in our present state of nowness with people living for the now, we have forgotten eternity. He says what happens is when you forget eternity, it, renew, it removes your magnanimity. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying if you're living for the present, if all of your money eggs are in that basket for the now, you're not thinking in any practical or real way that heaven is to come. You're not looking forward to any world beyond this one. Therefore, as C.S. Lewis would say, your magnanimity is empty and we become like men and women without chests. So then, Lewis also says, your, your magnanimous core is what connects your thinking to your doing. It's the liaison between your mind. As Christians, we have the mind of Christ. It, it, it empties it, or I'm sorry, that liaison is removed. And so there's nothing to take our minds that are heavenly minded and put them into heavenly action. Let's not be men and women with, without chests. Use our money for kingdom purposes. And the beauty of the Spirit indwelling His people and us being heaven-minded, longing for the appearing of Christ, will grow magnanimity in us. We will be magnanimous people, big-hearted people, willing to give, willing to serve, willing to get out of our individualistic, materialistic lanes and step into the kingdom of God and seeking His righteousness. But money is so key in this regard because the love of money is a second kingdom rival. Third kingdom rival, self-glorification. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Do you hear that? Practicing your righteousness. So because he's talking to disciples, these disciples would have in their minds the Pharisees of their day. Those who are self-righteous. Those who found their right standing before God because they did the right things. But they were not actually righteous. What Jesus is saying here is, as my disciples, you are righteous. You are righteous because you belong to me. But beware, disciple, that your desire for self-glory can still make you misrepresent God and glorify yourself through your religious actions, specifically, as we'll get to in a minute. 
This third rival, self-glorification, it exalts the kingdom of the self. Which, when you think of it, it wraps in the other two things too. If the kingdom of self is exalted, then you can put the love of money and the anxiety about what you will eat, what you will wear, what you will drink, under those kingdom of selves. The kingdom of self is obviously the rival to the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So Jesus is saying here, you are righteous, but let's bring your righteousness and rightly live your righteousness according to how I'm going to instruct you here. So there were these three rivals, but what he's going to go to in here, even as he's bewaring, you're going to see these three things that are actionable things for us, brothers and sisters. They're things that we can do that exhibit kingdom-mindedness that desires righteousness that is alien. It's apart from us that we need. These three things that Jesus is going to present show how to seek God's kingdom first and his righteousness rather than resting in our own and then glorifying ourselves. What I'd like you to think about these things is that there's a way in these three actions that we're about to talk about wherein we are boycotting the kingdom of self. We're boycotting the kingdom of self. You know what a boycott is, right? We're boycotting the kingdom of self for the sake of the kingdom of God. And specifically, for communion with the Father. What would that first one be? Giving to the needy in secret. Look at verse 2. Then when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, my disciples, my righteous ones, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When we give in secret, we are boycotting the kingdom of self. Because the kingdom of self wants us to shout it from the rooftops, to blow a trumpet, to let everybody know, I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm giving. People are blessed by my giving. No. Boycott the kingdom of self. Give to the needy in secret. So I would ask you this. Would you allow God to put this on your radar? To give to the needy in secret. Maybe there's someone in your circle of influence. It might not even be a Christian necessarily. It might just be somebody that you know is in need. Would you ask the Father to show you who that is? And to step into that secret giving? See, not only is it a boycott of the kingdom of self, it's stepping into the kingdom of God because in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus is just about to say, it says, Lord, give us our daily bread. When we give away our riches, we're saying, Lord, I'm putting myself in a place of greater need than I was before. I need your daily bread. I'm also saying, Lord, use me to provide your daily bread to someone else. You're boycotting the kingdom of self and you're engaging the kingdom of God and others. And the Father who sees what is in secret will reward you. Not monetarily, not with a pat on the back, but with the beauty of communion with the Father of understanding your relationship with him anew. Being part of his righteousness, his kingdom. Second thing, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is not a ban on corporate prayer. 
But it, what, what it is is this. Any of us who engage in corporate prayer should be wary if that is the only kind of prayer that we pray. If there's not a place where we can go in secret, a time where we can go to the Father, boycott the kingdom of self, who wants the glory of praying publicly and instead engage the kingdom of God and say, Father, there are these things that I really need to talk to you about. That's where we need to be. In the secret more than in the public. He continues about prayer. He says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In me as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Will you pray? Will you pray? Again, all of this is on the, based on the righteousness of Christ. Apart from Christ's righteousness, apart from us standing in Him, we cannot boldly come before the throne of grace. We cannot approach God in His holiness. We have no right to be there with Him unless we are righteous in Christ. But Jesus is saying the beauty of it is because you are righteous, you do have the opportunity. You do have the chance and more than a chance, you should. You should go to a secret place and commune with the Father. Be with Him. Hear from Him. If you don't know how to pray, then learn with the disciples and meditate on the Lord's Prayer. You don't have to have the best words. You don't have to have 45 minutes to go to that secret place. Would you find five minutes during lunch? Five fewer minutes on Facebook? Maybe an hour less on Facebook? Would you, would you find those opportunities to come to Matthew chapter 6 and pray the Lord's Prayer? Meditate on it. And be with the Father. In this, you are boycotting the kingdom of self because to take that hour off of Facebook or to even find five minutes at lunch, you're choosing to do something other than what you would want to do with that five minutes or that hour. You are boycotting the kingdom of self by choosing to use those times, those minutes, those hours, those days that you don't get back. You're choosing to use those times for kingdom purposes. Communing with the Father. You're engaging the kingdom that He has made you a part of. But you're making a choice to boycott the kingdom of self and engage God in His kingdom. Verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Quick tidbit on fasting. If you haven't read the book, Hunger for God, I'd, I'd recommend it to you like I did earlier. But I'll, I'll summarize Piper's argument a little bit here. Mostly taking from Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus talks about my people, my disciples will fast when I leave. What Jesus is saying there is my disciples, Christians, will fast because they long for the King, Christ, to return. We will fast because we want our hearts to long for His kingdom and His righteousness, for His return 
more than we long for lunch, more than we long for dinner, more than we long for whatever else we might be fasting from. Fasting, again, is a, is a boycott of the kingdom of self to step into the kingdom of God. Is it something that, that gains righteousness? No, not at all. It's an act of righteous people made righteous by Christ who then say, but I'm going to choose, I'm going to choose to seek to activate my identity by longing for the king's return and for the feast that I will have with him by missing the feast that is available to me right now. So I'll ask you this, those of you who have been part of Seek and at Edgewater this summer, have you fasted this summer? I'm, I'm not looking for head shakes or head nods, all right? Just a question. I'll say this, I haven't fasted as much as I thought I would at the outset. Okay? Um, that's just honesty with you. I'd encourage us to consider it. Consider all three of these things. How does giving to the needy how does secret prayer, how does secret fasting, how do these three things, as you step into the fall, how do these three things, how could they look in your schedule? Again, not to try to gain righteousness or brownie points with the Lord, but to say, God, you have made me righteous. You gave magnanimously your son. I belong magnanimously to you. A debtor made debt free. An enemy made a son or a daughter. All of my life belongs to you. You are the magnanimous one, ultimately. God, show me how you would want me to boycott the kingdom of self that just everything within my flesh desires, my appetites constantly. Lord, what appetites do you want to start pulling away from me because you want me to step into the appetite for the ultimate feast, the, the appetite for the ultimate father. Let me end with an illustration. So we, like I told you, we were in Alabama and we came back up north. And uh, I'm sorry, we did this on the way south. We went through Montgomery. Montgomery, Alabama is the capital of the state of Alabama. And Martin Luther King Jr. pastored a church there called Dexter Avenue Baptist Church for six years, from 1954 to 1960, all right? Um, we also went to visit his parsonage, which was just like four blocks away. As someone who like really lives in the neighborhood, it was just, it was just cool to think of him pastoring here, and then he probably walked up the hill to his parsonage and then walked back, all right? These were hard days, obviously. It was during the civil rights era, of our country's history. These were hard days in Montgomery. But Martin Luther King Jr. faithfully preached truth to power, gospel truth to segregationist power from his pulpit for those six years at Dexter Avenue. We went to visit. It was hot out. My kids were like, do we have to get out of the car? Get out of the car! Hopefully I said it nicer than that. But we did make it fast. We did make it fast. I'm going to show you a picture that's going to show you how fast we made it because Phoebe is like a blur in the picture, all right? It was a panoramic setting on my phone. We went to visit Dexter Avenue Baptist Church and there was something that struck me that only being in a place, only being in a place can speak to you the truth of what was going on there. So there's his church on the right. There's Phoebe in two different places. Amazing, all right? That's the church on the right. What I want you to see is the building on the left. The picture doesn't really capture it, but that's only a half block away. It's the state capitol building. So every single day when Martin Luther King Jr. went to work at church, every single Sunday when he showed up to preach, he knew that the powers that be the kingdom of segregation, the kingdom that though during um, MLK's time there was a more, there was a less segregationist governor, four years after he left, George Wallace became governor, who his famous line was, segregation today 
segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. This, this was the place where Martin Luther King Jr. preached Sunday in and Sunday out. That when his congregants stepped out of the door, there was the seat of power. There was the kingdom of segregation right there. I was awestruck by the proximity. This was also the church that a year after he assumed the pastorate, a woman named Rosa Parks refused to get up from her seat on the bus. And the Montgomery bus boycott began from this church. In the most segregated state in the country, Martin Luther King Jr. preached boycotts. Not because they hated buses, but because they were looking forward to a greater justice. They knew that action had to happen in order for the, the bonds of segregation to be broken in their city and in their state. They had to take action. They had to boycott the status quo and step into something else that would show that they were human that would show that they could ride the bus with anybody else. This is, what, this is what hopefully is illustrating what's going on in our hearts. The seat of power, the kingdom of self, is so close to us, it resides right here. Will you speak truth to power, the power of the kingdom of self, that demands your affections, that, de that determines your appetites, that constantly calls you into doing whatever you want to do when instead your heart should be saying, no, I'm righteous in Christ. I have communion available for me with the Father. And there are actions that I can take to live out wisdom and live out a hunger for God that can actually change my perspective from being kingdom of self-oriented to seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Let's pray. Oh Lord, nothing like this can happen apart from the movement of Your Spirit. And so Lord, would You use Your Spirit to prompt us to step out into actions of faith. To step out into making decisions about giving to the needy about secret prayer and secret fasting that would pull apart the bonds that still hold our flesh in bondage so much to ourselves. That, oh God, you would give us a renewed, radical view of your kingdom, of your righteousness, personified in Christ, that we would seek you, Jesus, with all that is in us as your indwelling Holy Spirit agrees and says, yes, 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 go for it. Depend on my grace. So Lord, even as we as a church step into this fall, into this, new, into this new school year, Lord, help us communally as a body to think about these things, to engage one another in kingdom of God, acts of righteousness, secure in our place in you, but desiring nothing less than the gracious rule of you in us. We pray this in your great name, Jesus. Amen.